y'all. Let's get started. It is 9.30. 42. However, the first section I'm going to read, I want you just to listen because there's something about just using the ears that I think puts us in a different state of mind. And I want to do an exercise where you put yourself in the position of people in the first century who would have encountered this text in the same way that when Jesus read it from a scroll. I mean, books didn't exist. Uh, these tables didn't exist. The air conditioning that we're sitting in didn't exist. It was a different world. And I want to do an exercise where we kind of put ourselves in that world Jacob is my child. I will help him. Israel is my chosen one. My soul has accepted him. I have given my spirit upon him. He will bring forth judgment upon the nations. He will not cry out or lift up his voice. He will not extinguish a smoking flax, but he will bring forth justice to truth. He will blaze forth, and he will not be shattered until he brings justice upon the earth, and the Gentiles will hope in his name. This is what the Lord God says, who made heaven and pitched it like a tent, who established the earth and the things in it, and gave breath to the people who are upon it, and spirit to those who walk upon it. I, the Lord God, have called you in righteousness. I will hold fast to your hand and strengthen you and make you a covenant for the nation to open the eyes of the blind, to lead those who are bound out from their chains and those seated in darkness out of prison. I am the Lord God. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praises to graven images. Look, the things which were from the beginning have come, and I have made new things known to you, which I reveal even before they are announced. This is the word of the Lord. So we may get further than that this morning, but if we do, it will be icing on the cake, because there is so much we could say about those first nine verses. Um, was it, those of you who were still looking at your Bibles, was it a little different than you expected? Yeah. I know some of you were still looking down at the Bibles. Say what? Yeah, so Christ actually quotes this passage in Matthew 12. Um, and this is the version that he uses. So that's why I read from that version. Um, one thing that stands out to me when I do this exercise, where I read scripture aloud to myself like that, is it shows me just how... Um, 
how arbitrary the, the chapter headings and verse numbers are. Um, what you have here is a development of a theme that's been going on for quite a while now in Isaiah, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue on for quite a while. So this, this section, even though we sort of break it up into chunks in order to talk about it, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Does that make sense? This is a, it was one scroll. It was one development of thought that God is leading his people through. The question, which we brought up a couple weeks ago, and this is the central theme of uh, especially the second half of the book. And it, it's such a prominent theme. Walton mentioned this. It's such a prominent theme that there's a question of whether or not it should really be thought of as two books, where it'd be like first Isaiah and second Isaiah. That's how strong this thematic change is. Who is the servant of God? That's the question. And it will be answered in different ways throughout. And uh, there's, a, there's an easy sort of answer that we can jump to in our Protestant evangelical sensibilities. And uh, we can very easily just say, oh, well, this is, that's, this is about Christ. Servant of God is about Christ. And that would be the end of it. And then we could all just go straight to church and not have Sunday school. But there's more to it. It is about Cyrus. Um, later on, God will call Cyrus his Messiah, his anointed one. So what do we do with that? What I'm I'm, I'm going to try to uh, I'm going to try to push us into uh, try to try to push our thinking on this a little bit because I've heard it said multiple times during this study um, and it kind of bothers me every time I hear it and I, it's it's not really about any particular person as much as just kind of the, the mood that we approach this stuff with I've heard it said that well it's so obvious in Isaiah that this stuff about the servant is about Christ I mean it's so you know if 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 people would just open up their New Testament and read it, if those Jews would just read their Bibles, I've heard that said in this room. Do you see the problem with a statement like that? Anybody? They are reading their Bibles. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the first thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, when, when you when you're dealing with prophetic messages, for me, from the Old Testament, there's always the early and latter reigns. So there is a prophecy that might come fulfilled within Isaiah's time, but there's also the implication that it's going to be fulfilled in another time as well. So the double, double prophecy. Yeah, but do you see the problem with saying that now that all that stuff has been fulfilled, if they would just open it up and read it, it would be so obvious to them? When we say that with well, hindsight. Yeah. Uh, it was very puzzling to the Jews to see God talk about his anointed like this. And then in 53, chapter 53, he talks about his anointed completely differently. They, they didn't have, they didn't know what to do with that. So they thought that there would be two messiahs. So it, I mean, it's, yeah. it's easy for us on the side of the cross to look backwards 
can see in a particular way. But I mean, the people who think they've got revelation all figured out, <laughs> they are are the ones who don't. Christian Jews. Um, so the first problem is that revelation in Scripture has to be revealed. You don't just open up the Bible. It doesn't. This book is not magic, y'all. That's the first thing. The second thing is that it's what I just said a minute ago that this was all one scroll, and so it says here very clearly, the servant of God is Israel, and this is all one long development of thought. So then, when it gets to Isaiah fifty-three, behold, my servant, my suffering servant. Well, if you've been tracking this all in one scroll and you're following the themes, well, is that not Israel then? Now, it is about Christ. I'm not saying it's not. But I'm saying that we have to approach this with a a degree of humility and seeing that there are multiple layers to this stuff. And the question of who is God's servant suddenly becomes way more interesting than we thought it was. And just saying, oh, this is about Christ. Well, there's way more that we can talk about here. Um, now, to show my hand a little bit, I'm going to use the, the uh, quadriga that Nick has been kind of guiding us through for a while. Um, you may recall that there are four traditional ways of interpreting any given passage of Scripture. The first two kind of go together, and that's the, uh, the literal or historical and the moral sense of Scripture. This is the way that the church fathers, the early fathers, interpreted this stuff. They used this fourfold method, and they all worked together, by the way, and that's important to remember. The, by, by historical standards or moral standards, um, I think it's a right interpretation of this stuff to say that the servant that God is talking to in Scripture is his chosen people, Israel. Even when you come to Isaiah 53, it's about his chosen people, Israel. It's the way the Jews claim it. Well, it says in Scripture that's what it is. And, and, and I can list other examples throughout this like second half of the book where it says very clearly that the servant of God is his people. Now, they're not being very good servants. It's a negative example. But, but it's not obvious that this passage here on its face is about Christ. Now Matthew applies it to Christ in Matthew 12 when he quotes this. He says it's about Christ. But Israel, my chosen one. So what do we make of that? Well, by historical and moral interpretations, that's the first two levels. Now, people tend to stop there in our, our materialist sensibilities and it's hard to get to the next sections. We at Christ Community have managed to pull off an incredible feat where we've gotten to step three. Step three is the Christological. So that's where we can say, oh, well, this is about Christ. And we've, we've kind of been practicing this for years, getting to think about even the passages in Scripture that aren't, that aren't obvious. We try to say, well, what does this have to say about Christ, even in an indirect way? Um, do you remember what the fourth step of the ladder is? Yes, very different words for the same thing. Um, 
this is this one is very difficult for us to understand, um, and it's one that I've challenged myself to really like sit in and really like get a handle on because it's so difficult to grasp. But it was very important to the early fathers. They spent a lot of time with this fourth method of interpreting scripture. Part of the reason it made more sense to them was because they weren't as individualistic. This is not an individualistic way of reading scripture. This is a community-based way. So an easy, well, I won't say easy, one way to get into this last method, and I do see it, I, I, I don't want to, but I can't help it, I see it as the top rung of a ladder, because you have to get through the first three before you get to this last one. Um, the, the question to ask is, what does this have to say about the church? Now, when we talk about the servant of God, we've already said that it's both Israel and it's Christ. We are the new Israel, and we are the body of Christ. And so in the church... All three of these ways of seeing Scripture come together, where when it talks about the servant of God, this is how the fathers understood it, that these passages are talking about the church. And it's talking about the experience of the church as the body of Christ and as the people of God. So when we get to Isaiah 53, and we're talking about the suffering servant, that's the suffering church who is living out the afflictions of Christ in her body, just like Paul talked about in the New Testament. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm going to challenge you a little bit on something here. Please. Uh, if you don't mind. So uh, I think uh, the only thing about what you I agree with everything you said. The only thing I have a little concern about is the idea that these um, four ways of interpreting are a, are, are a yeah. Ladder. Yeah. yeah. I think I think I don't think it's a progression. I think they're all valid and they all should be done. You know, and they're not it's not a it's not a start here, then advance to the next, and advance it. You see what I'm saying? That that's my opinion. Now I I haven't been able to be there for Nick's teaching yeah. on this, so I may there may be some things here you know that I don't. So I, I agree with that in principle, however, in experience or in practice, we can't start with the anagogical method. It's just not accessible to us without getting through the first three first. I'd like to take issue also, in particular about Isaiah 53. I mean, when I read it, it's just so obvious that to me that it's talking about Christ. I mean, yes. Um, and uh, modern Jews, there are a lot of testimonies of modern Jews. Number one, they don't read their own Hebrew Bibles very much. I mean, if they did, they would be saved. But. Uh, I wish you had been here for the first five minutes of this. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, but somehow they, they'll read the Bible and they read Isaiah 53 and one Jew said, what's Jesus doing in my Hebrew Bible? I mean, it, it was just so obvious to him that this is about Christ. So that's, that's all. <laughs> so, we have a 2,000 year tradition of of interpreting this stuff Christologically. It's not obvious to us in and of ourselves that this is the case. This is how it was handed to us. It is a reality that part of that tradition is this uh, 
is, is this other way of interpreting it where it's about the church. This is how the fathers saw it. But and so if we... say that Isaiah 53 was also talking about Christ? Absolutely. About being the father. Absolutely. Sure. And it's about Israel, and it's about Cyrus. It's all of these things at once. Okay. Later on in Isaiah, God is going to call Cyrus his Messiah. Sure. These things are all... These things are stacked up on each other. And... And... They're parts of each other in a real way. And so when we talk about the church as the body of Christ, I take that very literally. I think we literally are the body of Christ. I believe that that is a real statement. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's true. Yeah, go ahead. Just when you're done, I just have a thought. Go ahead, go ahead. I think really what you're getting at just in, in, in summary is that verse one in particular, probably all nine verses, really could be the quadriga in one verse. Just yes. The fact of you listing it out again kind of clicked with me. Maybe it already clicked with everyone else, but you have the literal historical aspect of this being Israel, God's chosen people. You have almost a moral in some ways of Cyrus as God's chosen Messiah in relation to the judgment in which he not only brings but sends the people back. You have the Christological of Christ. You have the anagogical, the mystical in the church. Mm-hmm. In this one verse, you have all four interpretations immediately in 42. That's just, I don't know if that's what you're getting at. Yeah. That's just, with listing it out again, that's just kind of what clicked. Well, and, and, and to Dad's point, these are not in conflict. They're not in conflict. But we, don't, we also don't have to be fundamentalist about this either. Mm-hmm. They're We're, not in conflict, but Christ is the final. He's, he's what, he's our goal. You know what I'm saying? I mean... Yes. I, I think that I think the Christological I think what Walt's saying is that it's true that, that and I agree with him that the, the Jews had trouble seeing the Christological side of interpretation here. I think we would all agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, now whether that's because it wasn't as obvious or it's because they their eyes were blind, that there's a lot of reasons, but but I'm just saying I think I think for them they had trouble with the Christological and maybe what you're kind of saying is that we because we have hindsight, at least here, now not all churches I think necessarily teach this, but we see we do have hindsight that it's about that there's a Christological interpretation too. Yes. And sometimes we can easily forget the other three. And I think that's maybe kind of what you're saying in a way. Um, maybe we can get too wrapped up in it. I don't know. Thanks for trying to clean that up, but I'm not gonna let myself off the hook that easy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the my my, the, the reason for my existence is to be so unified with Christ that you can't see the difference between the two. Okay. My, I am, I, my destiny is to be one with God. That is the destiny of all of us here. That's the purpose of the church, to be unified with God. That's why it's a marriage analogy, Christ and his church. It's, a, it's talking about real unity to the point where the two are so intertwined that you can't tell the difference between the two. Now, the church gets this wrong all the time because because we're not at the end of the story yet. But in as much as this stuff is about Christ, it also is about us who are his body. And we are caught up into the story of what Christ is doing. Yeah. Yeah. Justin was very clear in saying that we are 
spirit that we are that we are in a sense little Christ. We are Christ here on yeah. earth. Yeah. And people that we come in contact with, they may not we may be the only connection with Christ that they'll ever have. And, uh, and so it's our, our responsibility as believers, as children of God, and as a bride, as a church, to be Christ on earth. You know, so you know, be His hands, to be His feet, to be His to carry His, to be His voice when He wants us to speak, to uh, to, to be these things, to identify with, to know Him in the power of His resurrection, and to identify with Him in His suffering. In our worship on Sunday mornings, and we're going to do this again this this morning. I've been I've been carefully crafting our song repertoire to shape our imagination in this way. So we are crucified with Christ. We no longer live. It is Christ in us. There's another one. The church is one foundation. I love that hymn. Yet she on earth hath on earth hath union with God, the three in one, and mystical sweet communion with those whose rest is one. This is what we're all about here. Yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, and this is not an excuse for bad exegesis, okay? Yeah. Uh, I, I think in my own journey that I've tried to emphasize Christological interpretations in the Old Testament as a matter of kind of leaning against the wind against liberalism, uh, liberal theologians don't see it at all. And yay, many conservatives don't see it at mm-hmm. all. And so, uh, anyway. The Christological? Yeah. Yeah. They don't. Yeah. Or they don't use it. Yeah. Well, I'm not I'm not concerned about that in the least. <laughs> no, no, but I am. I mean, yeah. you know, in terms of what young people are hearing and stuff. Yeah. If you want to really push the mystical and body of Christ in Isaiah 53. Uh, one of our, one of God, part of God's will for us is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Yeah. That's the suffering Christ. We're not, I mean, ultimately we'll be conformed to his glory, but that's that's not something we can achieve now and here and now. But we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. So that's that's the suffering Christ. Uh, his body on earth, filling up the suffering that, that is lacking, according to Paul. So, what is the point of the suffering? Well, it is the battle uh, in the heavenlies against the powers and principalities. So, uh, um, gosh, now I've lost his name, but the, this uh, uh, neo reformer from Sweden, who was all about uh, Christus Victor. You know, points that to the church. This is this is our duty. Now we're taking up that battle, as Paul says, against the powers and principalities. This is all very mystical stuff. It is, and I don't. I'm not expecting that everybody in this room is going to have the same level of like burning in their heart when they hear about this stuff. I'm not expecting that. But when I'm sitting up here, I have to. I have to speak from my heart, and this is the stuff that gets me going with Scripture. This is what is engaging and compelling for me. And um, back to your comment, Walton, about how to reach young people. 
I've been saying this now for a few years, that I think that the way to reach young people is to answer the question, what does it mean to be human? That is, that is the answer. And um, every, every major issue that's going on in the world right now goes back to that one central question, what does it mean to be human? Um, that's the, and, and so everything that I'm, that I'm approaching through scripture has that sort of in the background. Young people are not going to care about the homeostatic union. They're not going to care about hypostatic, hypostatic union. They're not, they're not, uh, it's not going to, that's not going to be where they find their place in the Christian story. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have something to do with what, is it, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a priest? What does it mean to, um, what does it mean to engage in a hands-on, tangible way with what Christ is doing? Um, and, your, and your question is, what is under the most intense fire right now culturally? Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Yes. All this to say, there's going to be times when I seem to go back and forth in the interpretations, and that's because, again, I think they work together. Um, but my own personal interest right now is what does this have to say about the church, because that, to me, is um, what I personally find the most engaging. So it may seem at times like these passages don't have much to say about the church and about what we're about as a community, but I'm going to try to pull that out a little bit as we go through. And there's going to be examples in this chapter where I'm going to say that, well, this has to do with us as, as Christ Community Church. This has to do with what we're about as a community. So, any further thoughts before we uh, go back to the verses that we started with? We have the mind of Christ. The Bible says that very clearly. We have the mind of Christ. But that mind in us has to be a constant renewal. You know, so that's that's where that's where we sort of struggle, I think. Is how do I keep renewing? And it's a daily thing. You know, it's dying dying this evening and coming alive the next morning. And, uh, and so it's hard it's hard for us to get into that sort of cycle ourselves of this I would just bring out of God yeah. new every morning. New every morning. Further up and further in, as C.S. Lewis would say. I would just reiterate yeah. this more in passage like Isaiah 53, and I agree with you that in some sense it does relate to Israel also. But if that's where we stop, the rabbis, the modern Jewish rabbis, would be very happy with that because that's the way they interpret it, and that's it. And so they they never they never go on to a Christological interpretation. Well, yeah. God, I don't think so much God is Jesus said Himself that He's fixed it where they can't. They well, can't see it because they have no revelation. Yeah. To know Christ is only through revelation. You have to be. He has to reveal himself. He has to call you by your name somehow. You know, that's, that's complicated. You know, in the, um, 
in the Targum version of Scripture, which is the translation into Aramaic, from Hebrew into Aramaic. I think I have that right. Anybody correct me if that's wrong, but I think that's correct. This, this verse reads, Behold my servant, the Messiah, really? whom I uphold. In verse 42. Yeah. So, I think maybe they were a little more messianic than we give them credit for. I'm just saying the modern Jewish rabbi. Oh, abs- yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, they're contending with a 2,000-year-old tradition that has uh, you know, come out of the Old Testament and born fruit, and they have to reckon with that. The only way they can reckon with that is to, is to directly fight against it. And um, I have a fair amount of sympathy for that because this is not their tradition. You know, and we can we can uh, we can either browbeat them or we can uh, show them the love of Christ. Well, it's not a matter of browbeating; yeah. it's a matter of revelation. I mean, you know, some some yeah. Jews read that and they fall, you know, their eyes are open. Even the verse does a chosen one, isn't it translated Messiah? Chosen one, Messiah. Yeah. Chosen. Yeah. Yeah. Verse. Yeah. Well, even in the Septuagint uh, that you read, uh, the invocation is Jacob in Israel, right? Yes. So uh, even that, if, you, if you're able to look at it in what I would call a not earthbound paradigm, then you see Jacob, you know, he's the third patriarch. The whole, the whole thing with the patriarchs was passing on the seed. Jacob becomes Israel. This is his transformation into a godly man. This is his identity now in God. Yeah. And he's passing on the seed. And then later on, Isaiah is going to be talking about the root of Jesse. You know, that's roots come out of a seed. So they've, they've, they've lost the word. My impression is that official Judaism of the time had lost this connection to this, the idea of the seed, the little kernel of matter that grows into the great spiritual thing. Um, and they became completely distracted by basically day-to-day life, you know, the nation and the land. And that was it. And that was the end all. I only say that because this is a danger to the church too. You know, if if our end all is please let me have this job or please just get me through this day or please let my team win, you know, we're missing it too. You gotta be very careful about that too. I'm glad that this is uh, challenging all of us here. It's it's challenging for me. I'm not saying things here that even I agree 100% with, but I'm pushing myself in my thinking about this stuff because it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and it's the glory of kings to seek it out. There's a wrestling with scripture that we have to do here. Sometimes when we have these Sunday schools, I think we're just telling each other what we already know and we're just kind of patting ourselves on the back and I'm trying to push us to this next step beyond that, which is to really wrestle with the scriptures. Um, Israel was named Israel because that means he who wrestles with God and we forget that that was a blessing. It's a blessing to get to wrestle with God. You're not like well, he, uh, he goes from being deceiver to wrestling with truth. Mm-hmm. Not just wrestling with truth. 
wrestling with Yahweh, with, who is the truth, we find out. We do find out that that is truth incarnate, but there's a, there's a, there's a, um, there's a contending relationship there. It's not just contending with ideas, it's contending with a person. No, yeah, that's what yes. I mean. Yes. You're in the capital town. Yes. Um, so that's what I'm... I'm, I'm glad that this is where we are this morning because I think this is a good place to be. So, um, Jacob is my child. I will help him. Israel is my chosen one. My soul has accepted him. I've given my spirit upon him. He will bring forth judgment upon the nations. He will not cry out or lift up his voice, nor will his voice be heard outside. So we can apply this Christologically to when Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate and he is silent. That's Isaiah 53, right? What does this have to say about the church? Who is the body of Christ? Who is the mouth of Christ? Is there a time when it's good for Christians to be silent? Yes. But doesn't the gospel always bear fruit? Isn't it good to share the gospel all the time? Yeah. I'll uh, yeah. share a brief testimony here that my wife shared with me this morning. She probably wouldn't share it. She was visiting with her, her sister and brother in law last week while I was out of town. She was visiting them. And the brother in law, I mean, he's by his own. He's a lost man. Yeah. And we're not too sure about his sister. Uh, but Katie was, I'm going to share the gospel with him. Uh, I've got to share the gospel with these people. And she was over there for several days. But she said, they talk so much. They cut her off so much. I've had that experience. Uh, that she was unable to talk. Yes. So, although she might have liked to, verbally share the gospel. She was simply not able. She was cut off by, as it were, the principalities and powers. And, uh, so, yeah. I, sometimes we can't talk. I think, I think as Will Rogers said, we need to find those times when it's good to shut up. Well, I, <laughs> I found them a lot in my life. And someone said, share the Lord. He shared the Lord. Sometimes she words. You know, so I feel like my, my ministry is to love him because I don't know him many people do. <laughs> my, my, my sister's very well. Yeah. My brother-in-law is. I love so much. <laughs> in, my, in my job, my job is a very dark place. I, and it's that way by design. It's designed to be the whole, as it were. Uh, it is a, I mean, it, it's about as, it's, about, it's the darkest place you can find in this county. I'm pretty sure about that. You might share with Katie where you work, so she'll know. We can talk about it off the air, if you would like. Um, so. It isn't union. <laughs> it's definitely not union. No. Um, in a place like that, I have found that words mean nothing. And this is where my mind has changed in a, in a way, and I think I've become a, a much stronger believer over the last few years that actions speak louder than words. I've, I've really, I have really 
grown to um, cling to that statement like a like a lifeline, and um, it, it's it's quite possible that because the place that I work at is not like the quote unquote real world, that that maybe I'm extrapolating a rule that doesn't map on to the rest of life, but I think. But I think the default for Christians is to be quiet and to do what they've been called to do. And sometimes, as a byproduct of that, the gospel verbally gets shared. Yeah. Very quickly, I'm sorry, I don't yeah. interrupt you again. Um, the, uh, there's a Martin Scorsese movie called, uh, uh, what's the one where they're in Japan? The silence. The silence. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that that's one of the big themes of that film. Yes. That that you've got. It's about priests, missionaries, isn't it? Yeah. You got the Jesuit priests in Japan in medieval times, and they they discover very quickly that just going over there and verbally sharing the gospel doesn't work. Yeah. And so um, that's this is right down that movie's alley in terms of how you know one of the one of the themes. Of the, it's not the only thing, but it's one of them. And uh, so that would be—it's a hard movie to watch. It's—it's it's very dark. It's very, very hard. But it's because it's yeah. a lot of persecution of Christians in Japan. You see a lot of their sufferings. But it's a great movie, and I—I I would encourage people watching if you get a chance. Well, it's really kind of at the root of Celtic uh, evangelism too. You know, mm -hmm. go yeah. live among the people. Just—you're basically just going about your business. Uh, you know, in a, as godly a way as possible. And, you're kind of integrated into the community, then you can start explaining why you're different. I'm not saying that words don't have value. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I may be saying the opposite, but we can come back to that if you want to. Um, it, it's... The, the Logos which is the word of God is all about action. It creates the world. Right? And it, it has more to, it's not, it is, it is almost as a byproduct an act of speaking. Right? But it's a, it's a force of, of creation. Right? And this, this, um, um, this dynamic craftsmanship of the cosmos. Right? That is, I think, the illustration of what Christianity is about. It's not so much about reducing the gospel to a soundbite sentence that people can easily you know, consume like a product. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel, Christianity, before it was ever called Christianity, it was called the way. And it was called that based on the book of Exodus. And Exodus is a Greek word that means the way out. Yes, the way out. So, having taught public speaking for 33 years, basically, several more, I was trying to come up with a definition of speech and what it is. And really, when you pull it down, it is a secondary byproduct of the exhalation of waste. 
So everything that comes out, our first purpose of, of breath is to live, okay? But then somehow God worked it out to where we can, as a secondary, we can use breath to vibrate our, our, our vocal cords and breathe, mm -hmm. articulate sound, get a sound out. But it's because of the exhalation of CO2, and, uh, which is waste. <laughs> so so what I always try to tell my students that everything that comes out of our mouth basically is a byproduct of the exhalation of waste. At, in its best form, it's just vanity. <laughs> At the very least, we can say that. It's vanity. It's yeah. literally a passing of the wind. Literally. Right. Literally. So yes. I have to be very careful yes. the Now, there are, a lot, there are multiple proverbs about, be, one, be careful not to be too holy, and two, be careful not to call things holy that are, that are not that. Yeah. There are multiple warnings in proverbs about that. I have the sense or the feeling that um, the, the, the Protestant inclination to reduce the gospel to these sort of summary statements that are easily memorizable is, is, is a version of that. Is a version is a version of um, of taking something wonderfully mysterious and turning it into something that is not what it was meant to be. Um, it's hard for me to put words to this, but I'm trying to I'm trying to say in in a more rounded out, fleshed out way that I, I truly believe at this point in my life that how we live as Christians is far more important than what we say as Christians. Christ himself said this, by the way. He said that the people who prophesied in his name and shared the gospel and did all of this stuff with their mouth, that it was going to mean nothing, and he was going to say, it was how you treated the least of these. It was, it was your actions that showed me who you were. So, anything else on these first few verses? Well, I, I will uh, stand up for exhaling a little bit <laughs> because it's not all bad. It, it also can be a uh, sort of symbolic spirit going out. You know, mm -hmm. as, as Christ exhaling on his disciples, uh, ex we exhale because our lungs are relaxed. Yes. It, it's because of the elasticity of the lungs that we exhale. So it's not really even a controlled event unless you're thinking about it. Nobody, nobody dies with their lungs full of air. Yeah. Um, the, the, the natural state of lungs relaxed is they're empty. Yes. And when people die, people in healthcare uh, often can just identify the sound they make. It's called the death rattle. So uh, there is something about the spirit of life, too, that uh, can be uh, attached to exhaling. As David says, when you speak, so it can be speaking the spirit to people as well. Yes. Just, just to make the counter argument. Well, um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that one is bad. And I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm going to participate in the creed later. And I'm going to be leading y'all in singing songs. These are these are things of, that have to do with words. Yeah. Well, and as you said, you know, yes. singing is like sacrificing our breath yes. for our natural breathing. You know, for the service of God. As a 
as a um, as a response in a in a relationship between you and God, I think it's definitely the way to go. Um, but I'm doing that in here with you guys. I'm not out there on the street corner singing the same songs that I would sing in here because I do think that that is throwing pearls to pigs. I really do think that. So what we need to do is we have our relationship with God and it's available to anyone who wants to come in and participate with us. Um, but we don't, we, don't have to, um, we don't have to break out the megaphones and the speakers and, uh, and reduce what we're about to some sort of um, conspiratorial project. So. Yeah, it's, yeah we, it, it's one of those things that we have to be discerning about yeah. moment by moment because we never know when fertile ground we're going to run across fertile ground. You know, and I've heard, I, I've not experienced this myself, but I've heard people, you know, people told me that they just felt like they were supposed to speak the gospel to somebody and that person will respond with, you know, they're hoping somebody, for somebody to talk about. It happened to me in Mexico. I was oh, yeah. learning Spanish, and we went into a shop, and uh, oh, these ladies were so sweet, you know. And my husband says, "Why don't you share the four spiritual laws with them?" Because that's what Hampshire say Jesus, you know. Yeah, and like a parent, you know, and I said, <laughs> "But yeah. I did." And um, and I was reading it, and they were helping me, you know. And then, and then oh yes, we want to pray to receive Christ, and they did. And then one lady wanted. Can you share it with my my family? Often we went downtown and met them for Bible study for several several times. We went on five. I mean, it's like, and we heard that they kept going. I thought, well, Lord, you know, that's all. If that's the only people I ever see, you know, come to the Lord. That field You never know. Well, and there are many cases. There are many cases in the Gospels where Christ does this. He oftentimes speaks into people's lives um, but the marker of identifying the servant of God is that he's silent yes. a bruised reed he will not break a faintly burning wick he will not quench you may recall that the Satan character from Assyria when he comes to speak his deceiving words tells them that Egypt is a broken reed it is a it's something that if you lean on it it will go through your hand because it is broken and sharp. It has to do with betrayal. If you depend on it, it will hurt you. Um, that is not what God's servant will be like. He will not break a reed. A faintly burning wick, he will not quench. Again, it's an, it's an image of something that's happening very quiet. It's not a roaring campfire. It's a faintly burning wick that, though it is small, does not go out. Though it is small, it does not go out. You know, the Lord says, unless you come as a child, you can't come. Yes. It seems like He comes to us in that soft, Yes. This is a principle all throughout the Scriptures. I mean, there should be verses coming to mind as, as we're talking about this. Other examples in Scripture of the still, small voice of God. This is throughout the Bible. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. I have read interpretations of this that drive me crazy 
there these this materialistic notion that oh well this is talking about the expansion of the universe and this is talking about um, how we see now with our modern telescopes and our science that the universe is like stretching out so this is this has to be what this is an example of how science and the Bible line up <laughs> that is not what this verse is about <laughs> this is about the cosmos being a tent for God to dwell in a tabernacle this is tabernacle and sacred space imagery which is the most um, frequently occurring and I would say most important imagery in scripture because it's all about being a priest that is the answer what does it mean to be human it's all about being a priest and so the primary image that God uses is priesthood imagery the cosmos heaven and earth are the tent where God shows up and we mediate that interaction between God and the rest of the world. Kind of like an icon. Um, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will hold fast onto your hand and strengthen you and I will make you a covenant for the nation to open the eyes of the blind to lead those who are bound out from their chains and those seated in darkness out of prison I'm the Lord that is my name I will not give my glory to another nor my praises to graven images look the things which were from the beginning have come and I have made new things known to you which I reveal even before they are announced so in the arrival or in the person of God's servant. Now, I'm bringing in all the layers here. In the story of Israel, in the person of Christ, and in us as the church, the former things find their meaning, right? It is through the people of Israel that God prepares us to understand who the Messiah is and what he's about. It is in the person of the Messiah that these old stories from Genesis that Craig has been leading us through come together and make sense, right? And it is in the church, in the body of Christ, that these stories actually uh, find experiential meaning where we live them out in real time. Uh, an example of this would be how our church services today reflect what we saw earlier in Isaiah about what the heavenlies looks like and in Ezekiel and in Revelation these visions of what heavenly worship looks like we live out every week on Sunday mornings our sanctuary is crafted to look like that um, so that is how in Christ and in his body the former things find their meaning and new things are revealed. I've been talking about the great inversion for quite a while. This is, this is the great inversion where God lays out a pattern throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament he flips it on its head. Right? We see this all over the place in the New Testament. Um, there's this... Uh, let me just say one more thing and then I'll open it up to comments before we end. There are two different kinds of time in Greek. 
There is chronological time, which is linear time, which is what we're familiar with, which is the boring, uninteresting version of time. And it's not what we're called to inhabit as the church. We are called to inhabit the second version of time, which is called kairos, which is, you might call it appointed time. It's the eternal moment that Jean-Pierre de Cassade talks about in Sacrament of the Present Moment. It is, it is the eternal moment of life with Christ. It is, it's what it means to pray without ceasing. It's to inhabit that eternal moment. Now, in that moment, in the eternal moment, we are literally seated with Christ right now. Scripture says this is true. It says we are seated with Christ right now. What does that mean? Well, this is a statement beyond chronological time. It says that Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's a statement beyond chronological time. It's the eternal moment, right? That's where we are as the church. We're living, and we have to learn to see it this way. We have to have our eyes opened to see it this way, which is why Christ came to open our eyes. To help us to live in this this eternal present moment with God, that inclu- it's it's a moment of eternity that includes both the past and the future. That is heaven, and if you live in that, you're living in heaven. We begin to experience that now. It's something to pursue. It's something to invite uh, uh, Christ to make real for us. It's not something that you will likely experience fully, although I think some people do experience it before death. Um, It's rare. It usually requires the spiritual disciplines to get even close to it. But um, I'm just telling you that it's out there. (laughs) According to St. John of the Cross, getting there is the dark night of the soul. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. And one thing that's interesting because uh, uh, truly listening involves uh, being in the past, the present, and the future at the same time. So that's not easy to appeal. The the example is somewhat like athletics. If I'm playing second base and I have a runner on first, I, uh, I have to, if the pitcher's about to throw the ball, I have to anticipate what maybe happened in the past, what's going to happen in the present, and what's going to happen in the future. So I have to be ready. I have to get myself ready, ready position where if what, what happens if the ball is hit to me? What, what, you know, uh, what, what did this hitter do the last day when he came back? You know, I mean, there's lots of things that go through your mind where you have to realize, okay, if the ball's hit to me in second, that means the shortstop's coming up. Second base, I can flip it to shortstop. You can flip it to first base, try to get a double play. Or maybe I can't do that. It's the ball's hit too slowly. I've got to go to first base and get one. You know, I mean, you're living past, present, and future constantly. And for us, you know, it's realizing that we need to be good listeners. We need to live in that place. It's not easy. It's not easy because uh, get hung up in the past, get hung up in the present, or get hung up in the future. constantly. So 
which it's not which is not really even possible for us. I mean, time and place is such a ball and chain on us. It's really spirit. I mean, this this is one of the, those aspects of God which is just not graspable. And, and we can practice that discipline that you're talking about, but I mean, I'm. God's not thinking about what he's going to have for lunch. You know, he's not bound to time in any way, at all, in any shape or form. I mean, this is just not conceivable, really, in our state right now. There is no, in some ways, with God, there is no past, present, or future. Yesterday is today is tomorrow. Well, hopefully, if we're doing our job right, hopefully what we're about to do this morning is a little glimpse of it because the Sabbath is is not a point along the linear path of time. The Sabbath is something that exists outside of it. And so if we're doing Sabbath this morning, then hopefully we are at least practicing, maybe not getting, maybe not getting it right, but we're practicing living in this eternal moment with Christ. Um, it's a way. It's a journey. It's the way out. That's. Um, See, it's, the, the theater is what, when you get to a point, this, well, this is exactly what you're trying to teach. Is that if you are, you're in, you have to stay in the moment of the play. If you start thinking about how you screwed up in the last scene, you're going to get thrown off. If you start thinking about, oh man, I got this other scene coming up in front of me that I'm going to. And if that, if those. If those thoughts come into your head, you've screwed up. You've got to stay in the moment. You've got to live in the moment. And that's the only thing you've got at this time. And then you have to trust, if I stay in this moment, the next moment is going to be okay. And, uh, and then the moment after that's going to be okay. But if I start thinking about it, I'm, I'm doomed. You know, so anytime you see an actor break, they'll lose their place yeah, yeah. because their mind has gone someplace else. I'm not saying that I know how to do this, but I am saying that this is what our calling is as Christians. And uh, let's go practice.